Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Uh, did, did you see the Super Bowl last week? Okay, some people did. I did. Uh, the Super Bowl last week. So, honestly, like, I've been thinking about this all week when I started reading this passage. The Super Bowl is a remarkable spectacle of so many things. It's a remarkable international spectacle of athleticism and competition and marketing genius and creativity, and design, and presentation, and theatrics, right? Think of it, like the halftime show is now as big of a deal as the game itself, right? Like decades ago, it was like, I don't know, some marching band is like walking across the field. Now it's like, you know, the most famous performers in the world vie for the stage of the Super Bowl halftime show. Speaking of the halftime show, Seems like every Super Bowl halftime show, like every Olympics opening ceremony, gets bigger and bigger every time, right? It's like they're trying to outdo the last opening ceremony, right? It's like, like you know, it, it, it's like if somebody flies in on a helicopter and parachutes down to the microphone, next time it, it'll be like, I don't know, like the space shuttle lands on the field or something. Like, it's like every time we make a bigger and bigger deal out of these things. And I thought about how that is for our world today, you know, for our children and younger generations, even, even for us. It seems like we're constantly presented with images of strength and perfection and physical beauty and intellectual superiority, artistic um, wonder, athletic wonder. And, uh, you know, one spectacle outshines another. 
you know? One thing is bigger than the next. This time is beggar, better and grander than the last time. I think to the point where we're, we're not often impressed anymore. It takes a lot to wow us. It, it's now what we expect. And, and it, it almost seems like, like culture is addicted to crave for the next bigger and better thing. It almost seems like people want glory, you know? And, and I'm not knocking the Super Bowl or the halftime show. I, I think it was fun. Uh, but but it's, it's like when you look at humanity, we seem to want glory. We seem to crave for what is outside of ourselves, for what is larger than life. We seem to want something to glorify. And so the letter to the Ephesians in the first century was written by a man who seemed the unglamorous opposite of all of that stuff. Paul was, a pris- Paul was writing the letter from prison. And he wrote that letter from prison about what he believed was actually the spectacle, the grandest show of all time. And he says here in chapter 3, specifically in verse 10, He said that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? It's such a wonderful passage, and that's that's right in the middle, and I want to focus on that today. Do you realize what Paul is saying there? He's saying that angels and demons are astounded by not the Kansas City Chiefs, not Rihanna. It says that demons and angels are astounded by the church. Now, I know that when those kids heard Chrissy saying the church is better than Disney World, not a chance half of them believe that. (laughs) Not a chance. It's not her fault. That's just, that's how they're bred. That's how we're bred. Most of us in this room don't feel that way. Most of us have had very negative experiences in religion and church. Right? So a lot of us are probably thinking, I'd rather go to Disney World than go to church. I think sometimes the church has deserved that type of a reputation. Nonetheless, Paul says that angels and demons are astonished at what God is doing in his church. The church, it, it, God showcases his grace through unexpected, humble means, especially through the church. The good, the bad, the ugly of the church, God is using the church as a spectacle to the universe of his wisdom and glory and grace. So the wisdom that Paul wrote from prison uncovered the mystery of the gospel, which is the centerpiece of Christianity. And and his prison wisdom, if I can put it that way, also uncovered the mystery, that was Paul's own life, actually. We'll talk about that. And, and, and the letter, and specifically these verses today, uncover for us, reveal the mystery that is the church itself. The universal church of all time, the global church, and, and even our little deep-run church. So we're going to talk about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Paul the apostle, and the mystery of the church, which we're all a part of in some way. So here we go. Revealing the mystery of the gospel was for Paul a lifelong labor of weakness. 
Yeah, I said, lifelong labor of weakness. The gospel, the ministry of the gospel was such a powerful mystery revealed that when it was revealed, it actually put Paul in prison. That's how powerful and dangerous in counterculture the message of the gospel, the mystery that the gospel revealed was. So like if you look in verse one where Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, I, Paul, and you Gentiles, those phrases underline a radical circumstance that was a spectacle in itself. The fact that a once elite religious Jew was now imprisoned for associating with Gentiles. This is, like we talked about last week, we don't appreciate how radical that was. That a Jew, a religious elite among the Jews was in prison because he had loved and associated with and spent so much of his life serving the needs of Gentiles. That would be like saying a mid-19th century white southern aristocrat were imprisoned for associating with slaves and, and living in ben, on their behalf and for their benefit. What we're reading here in Paul's life is like saying a former Nazi during World War II was imprisoned for the sake of the Jews of Europe at that time. Paul's message the mystery of the gospel revealed undermined the assumptions of the world, the established, powerful movers and shakers of that culture. So if you read the book of Acts, if you read, for instance, Acts chapter 21, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he ends up back in Jerusalem and he was captured by an angry mob and the mob had accused him of forsaking the law of Moses, which he hadn't. And the mob had accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, into the Jewish temple courts, which was just a conjecture. He hadn't done that. And yet, all of these accusations led to a series of events and hearings where Paul ultimately was led to Rome. This all ends up after a few years in Paul in Rome for two years, under house arrest, in chains, waiting to appeal his case before Caesar. And so Paul wrote this letter to Christians in Ephesus while in chains for the Gentiles of the world because he had made it his goal, his life ministry, to communicate to Gentiles the mystery of the gospel, what the gospel revealed, right? So what is that? What's the message of the gospel that Paul felt was so important it was worth going to prison? Well, if you look at verse six, again, he spells it out. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He elaborates on what we discussed last week from the end of chapter two, how God had not only reconciled humanity to himself, but God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, was reconciling human beings to one another who were formerly enemies, especially Gentiles and Jews. Now, of course, reconciliation, unlike victory, right? So we have to get out of our Super Bowl mentality and into the mentality of the church that Paul's trying to talk about. Reconciliation, unlike victory, reconciliation cannot be accomplished by might. Reconciliation can only be accomplished through weakness because each faction has to give something up. 
Reconciliation doesn't work if both sides are trying to win. It only works when both sides decide to pursue the path of weakness in giving something precious up. Paul gave up his freedom in order to reveal this mystery of the gospel to Gentiles. It's sometimes the case that it's one's weaknesses and not their strengths that draw the attention of others. Isn't that true? Not always our talents and successes, but sometimes our failures, our weaknesses, and our sufferings get people's attention. And actually, Paul's own life was a revealed mystery that promoted the very gospel he was talking about and being put into prison for. Paul often said that he was the least likely recipient of God's grace and God's calling on his own life. He says, if you keep reading on in verses seven and eight, he said, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He's not just saying, hey, I, I looked around at my different career, I went to the career fair, and I decided to talk to Gentiles about the gospel. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This is something God gave him that Paul did not believe he deserved. Because he goes on to say, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Also in the book of Acts, if you read chapters eight and nine, you will learn of how Paul, formerly known as Saul, was Jesus Christ's greatest enemy, humanly speaking. Because of his brutal history, Paul would go on, after he became a Christ follower, he would go on to call himself the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, he said to his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul called himself the chief of sinners because he knew his story, he knew his past. But in God's irony and in God's grace, Paul became Christ's greatest missionary. Paul's life became a spectacle. Literally, like Paul was a spectacle of the glory of God. But what, draw, what drew people's attention to Paul was weakness. The fact that he was not the likeliest candidate to be the world's most influential missionary. And really, we see in the life of Paul this mysterious guy, right, through whom God worked we see in Paul's life a model for the Christian's mentality in all ages. Like Paul, we look for the glory of God in unassuming little things. We look for the riches of God's grace, what's truly important, what cannot be taken away for us, we, from us. We look for these things in the unassumed, little, counterintuitive things. Now, I need to clarify what I mean by saying God's grace and power and glory and wisdom are in the little things. I do not mean that God is the little things, that God is in the little things. I'm not saying God is a butterfly. God is a daisy. God is in the daisy. God is in the butterfly. No, this, what I mean is God reveals his wisdom, his glory, his kindness through unglamorous, unassuming unexpected weakness. This is the hour of the Shire folk. You knew it was coming. (laughs) 
This is the hour of the Shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? This was said by Elrond when a small, simple hobbit volunteered to carry the great ring to its destruction. And in a similar way, Paul is saying that angels and demons and you and I would never have selected Paul to uncover the mysteries of God's grace. Think of the impact that this letter to the Ephesians has had on world history for 2,000 years. Think of the impact that Ephesians has had in your life if you are a Christ follower and you're familiar with the New Testament. All because the man was in prison. How might we as a church, because a lot of people say that Ephesians is like the church's epistle, because it, it, it's very general. Does it, he's not mentioning specific people by name. A lot of scholars think it was a general letter written to a bunch of congregations in that region, but it really allows everybody to take ownership of it. it it's very relatable to everybody. Uh, so some people call it the church's epistle. But, but how might we as a church avoid the trap of always looking for the next big thing, of, of being a church that seeks and prizes spectacle, you know? I don't mean reading glasses, right? Because you're like, no, I need my spectacles, Brian, or I can't see. No, spectacle, the big deal, the big show. How can we be a church that doesn't get trapped in always looking for the bigger, more sophisticated, shinier, more polished look to our community? How do we avoid that trap? A society without God is always looking for glory. Just because people don't believe in a God and worship him does not mean they are not longing for glory. They're, they're, they're wired to seek glory. But humans without God look for glory in humanity, in created things and people, and they'll never be satisfied. We're surrounded by people who are looking for bigger and better and can do very impressive things, but will never be satisfied by the Super Bowl or the Olympics or blockbuster movies or military strength or artificial intelligence. Like all of this showcases the height of humanity's achievements and capabilities, and it is something to marvel at because it all comes from God. God made people who make these amazing things. As we seek for what's grand and sublime and, and otherworldly in human creations and invention, um, we're no longer paying attention to what God is doing. And, and it's like we don't pay attention to anything or anyone unless they blow us away and impress us. And then we don't want to go back and do the last thing because it's not the new thing and it's not the biggest thing and the greatest thing. Even in religion, right? I mean, think of your church experience as an American. And I know some of your stories. You've been to lots of different churches in your life, right? I, I mean, we have to ask ourselves as Christians, as churchgoers, hard questions. Are we always looking for shock and awe in a church? Are we always looking for innovation and success to think that, hey, we're doing God's will? 
We're being productive. We're being fruitful. Because those things are the opposite of what the Bible teaches us to expect as God works through us. I went to seminary 20-something years ago, and it is taking me 20 years to remember that, to remember that God does not use the world's expectations to show us what it means that he is active and working among us. Jesus called his followers the poor in spirit. He called them those who are merciful. He called his followers the meek. He didn't say blessed are the sexy. He didn't say blessed are the sophisticated. Blessed are those who parachute down onto the football field and blow everybody away with their skill and talent and strength and speed and intellect. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is what he said. So how might our church avoid the trap of seeking after the spectacle of religion and spirituality and, you know, church productivity? I think a a big answer to that question is by remembering what the mystery of the church is. We looked at the mystery of the gospel revealed. We looked at the mystery of Paul's life who revealed the gospel. And I'm gonna tell you, the church is a mystery because it's a mess and you know it is. Some of you more than others. And if you don't think it's a mess, hang around long enough. You will discover it's a mess. But as Paul would say to the Corinthians, God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. An unlikely advocate like Paul telling the Gentiles of the world about the God of Israel. An unlikely crew, a motley crew like us, who would be salt and light to our community in Carroll County. Why? Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Isn't that amazing? Some of you say, none of my friends want to hear about my faith. My relatives and my family, they don't want to hear about my faith. I I look foolish to them. They don't invite me to certain types of parties. And they don't ask for my advice. And they don't want to know about what is so important to me in my life. And it just seems like so many people in our society are walking away from objective truth and walking away from this gospel and walking away from the true message of Christianity and we get discouraged and we become self-conscious. And you know what Paul is saying? Yeah, a lot of people will ignore it, but check it out. Angels and demons think it is absolutely astounding. They notice The people we don't notice in the universe notice what God is doing among us right here. Through the church, God is showcasing his awesome wisdom to those in the heavenly places. 
God is working through us. As Peter would say in, in, in his letter, Peter, Peter would say that what God is accomplishing through Jesus in the church, in you and in me, he said, these are things into which angels long to look. It blows them away. As, as John Milton said in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, admiration seized all heaven, what this might mean, and wither tend, wondering. In light of this revealed mystery, God's wisdom and glory revealed through weakness to reconcile us back to him, to reconcile Jews and Gentiles and black and white and Asian and Native American and Republicans and Democrats and, you know, the whole shebang. This mystery un, uh, un, unfurled, it led Paul to conclude in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Did you hear that? What I'm suffering for you, Paul said, is your glory. He was saying to them, don't worry that I'm suffering because of you. Don't worry that I'm suffering because of what you now believe and what might make you suffer also. This is actually your glory. Me being in prison is actually your glory. We have to listen to that to avoid the trap of spectacle as Christians. Paul's suffering was their glory. Numbers were not their glory. Recognition, location, success was not, is not our glory. Suffering is our glory. Suffering is our glory because it was Christ's glory. We want to resist. We want to say, no, 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 no. Suffering is your glory because suffering was Christ's glory. Do we not worship him? because he laid down his life and was then honored by God the Father. Diane Langberg said, Jesus came as a vulnerable baby who became a boy, who became a man, who served others and talked about little things in order to describe the kingdom of God. He talked about mustard seeds and lost coins and lost sheep. This is how Jesus described what his kingdom was like. Sheep and lost coins and mustard seeds. And he himself became a sheep to die for our sins. So when we look at Jesus Christ, when we see what Jesus revealed to all of us, we, we really see in our Lord that God showcases his grace through unexpected, humble means. And that must be our way. Yes, sometimes God uses shock and awe to communicate his grace to the culture, through us, but that's not the norm. Shock and awe is not the norm. The norm is that suffering is your glory, that weakness is, is God's strength. That what the world thinks is foolish is actually the wisdom of God. So let's look as a church, and maybe this will help you in your career pursuit or what you think is important. It helps me in those ways. But, but look for glory, look for the glory of God and look for the riches of his grace in the unassuming little things. 
When churches try to impress like the world tries to impress, when churches try to succeed like the world tries to succeed, they always fail in their purpose to reflect the glory and wisdom of God. If you've had a bad church experience, I have, it is because we fail to understand how God works among us. But when we prioritize the riches of God's grace, underline the word grace, not works, not impressiveness, grace, his gift of kindness to us who don't deserve it. When we prioritize that, we actually do become an example to angels and demons of the glory and wisdom and love of God. And they are amazed at what they see. And you know, some of our neighbors will be amazed too. Let's not forget that. Let's pray. Father, we need your wisdom as a church. We're praying about, expanding, we're talking about looking for locations. And and as I see the women and men, the elders and deacons, I look out over the congregation, I say, wow, there's more work to be done than we can manage. There's more to organize than we can manage. There's more to do than we can fully manage. I see everybody serving and working hard and sacrificially. And so I thank you that at this point, Father, it's not for a lack of volunteering or motivation um, that we are struggling to keep up with what you are doing. And so especially now, Father, help us to reject the assumptions of our world that bigger is better, that more impressive is right. Help us to embrace the little things, the simple things, caring for one another, loving our families, forgiving one another, doing what may not be noticed by others, but is noticed by you. And Father, I do pray that we would be the kind of spectacle that you have called us to be. Thank you for blessing those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In our Savior's name, amen.